Hello, my name is John Kim, high school pastor, and today I will be answering some of the most Googled questions about God. Woo! <laughs> All right, so first question is, is God an old man with a beard? Um, I don't know if they teach us this in seminary, but that's a good question. I don't know if God grows facial hair, because isn't facial hair kind of like bad for you? You have to shave all the time. So I feel like he wouldn't have any, if I were to guess. Second question, is God of War on PS4? I do know the answer to this one, because I own a PlayStation and God of War is a PlayStation exclusive. And everybody knows that PlayStations are better than Xbox. And unfortunately, I will no longer have a relationship with my PlayStation because I have a baby due in a month, so bye. Third question, is Godzilla a boy or a girl? I don't know if I've studied the anatomy of Godzilla anytime recently, but Godzilla has a short temper as far as I know and likes to destroy buildings. And I've worked with a lot of teenage students, so if I were to bet, Godzilla is a teenage boy. Fourth question, is God capitalized? I guess, but my question is, why is anything capitalized? Why do we have two versions of each letter? Wouldn't it be so much easier if all the letters were lowercase or if all the letters were capitalized? Think about that for a second. Then you don't have to teach kids two versions. And it's harder for people who are immigrating into this country and trying to learn a new language, like me and my brother. All right, last question. Is God real? Pastor Brian, I feel like you might need to help me on this one. Well, some of you are probably wondering where we got the idea for that intro video. It's actually based on a popular YouTube series in which celebrities are invited to answer some of the most commonly Googled questions about themselves. For instance, John Krasinski being asked, for instance, are you really Polish? And the answer is yes. Or the Muppets being asked, how do you actually get to Sesame Street? <laughs> the answer is, be kind and generous. So we thought it might be fun to introduce each of our messages in this series by asking some of our pastoral staff to answer some of these commonly Googled questions about God. So you can tell us if it's fun or not, but we thought it would be. It turns out that every year, millions of people turn to Google and the web to find answers to their most commonly answered que asked questions about God. In fact, last year, there were more web searches for the name Jesus, or containing the phrases containing the name Jesus, than for searches for Taylor Swift or Kim Kardashian, but not as many as for the NFL or for Star Wars. So <laughs> I'm not sure what that means, but that's how it turned out. Interestingly, in recent years, searches for church have gone down, Searches for God have gone up. Not surprisingly, searches for God are more common during Christmas and Easter and more common in the Bible Belt than in other parts of the country. Also not surprisingly, Massachusetts ranks number 48 in the number of searches for God of all 50 states. And sadly, the most often searched phrase containing God last year was for God of War, which is a video game. So... <laughs> That probably tells you something. For our purposes, the three most commonly Googled serious questions about God in 2019 were these. 
Who created God? Why does God allow suffering and evil? And why does God hate me? Now, those first two are fairly predictable, but that third one catches us by surprise. Maybe reveals how misinformed people are about God and why perhaps some people are not likely to walk into a church on a Sunday morning. So as we try to think about a series that would be a logical follow-up to the Wonder Series of Advent, we decided to go after six of the most often asked questions about God. And we're not going to limit ourselves just to top Google searches, but it does provide us with a good starting point. So the first three questions in our series will be these. Is God real? Does the Bible really matter? And why does God allow suffering and evil? We're still finalizing the rest of the list, the next three, but we'll kind of let you know as we get close. Now, as we head into this series, um, we want to be, we want to avoid simplistic, definitive answers to these questions because these questions aren't simply or definitively answered. We want to leave room for doubt and for struggle because doubt and struggle are legitimate parts of every person's faith journey, whether you're a seeker or a skeptic or a believer. And while we want to offer reasonable and even compelling responses to these questions, we realize not everyone will agree or even accept those answers, and that's okay. It really is. We are a community of people who are on the way, seekers and believers looking to discover life with God. This is a part of that journey. So with that in mind, let's go after our first question. Is God real? Now you could call this the mother of all questions when you think about it. I mean, the answer to this question affects the answer to every other question that could be asked. If God is real, it changes everything. For another thing, the, the, the answer to this question the stakes could not be higher. I mean, this is not like asking, you know, where should we go for dinner or will Brady be back next year? Those are all important questions, I understand. But if God is real, eternity hangs in the balance. And yet, as important as this question is, as high as the stakes are, this is one question that cannot definitively be answered. It cannot be proven. Down through the centuries, the best minds on the planet and probably every mind on the planet has wrestled with this particular question and yet it still feels like it's up for grabs. So let's very thoughtfully but also very humbly go after this question together, is God real? And let's be sure we know what exactly we're asking. What do we mean when we say something is real? Well, something is real when it's actually existing as a thing or occurring in fact, not imagined or supposed. In other words, for a thing to be real, it has to agree with known facts or actual events. Now, I want you to notice we're, we're not just asking if God exists, which is kind of a theoretical academic question. We're asking if God is real. And that's a bit more personal, a bit more tangible. When people ask if unicorns are real, they're not really asking if a horse-like 
creature with magical powers and a spiral horn once existed. What they're asking is if that kind of a creature can actually be experienced in real life by a real person. So when we ask, is God real? We're asking if an all-knowing, all-powerful, supreme being or force exists and can be experienced by real people. Since it's generally agreed that the existence of God can't be proven, the best we can do is point to lines of evidence. Evidence that when considered point us towards a particular conclusion. And down through the centuries, literally dozens and dozens of lines of evidence and argument have been offered up by great thinkers. So we can hardly do the subject justice in 30 minutes, but let me offer a few lines of evidence for the existence of God. We'll offer them up and think about them, but, but in the end, every person has to decide for themselves if God is real. So let's consider first the cosmological evidence. Cosmology has to do with the origin and development of the universe. It grapples with the question, why is there something rather than nothing? I don't recommend it as a pickup line. <laughs> why is there something rather than nothing? If something is real when it agrees with the known facts, certainly one fact we would agree on is that the universe exists. Matter exists, energy exists, you and I exist. But why and how? That's the question. When you think about it, there really are only three options for explaining the existence of the universe. Either it has always existed, so it's self-existent, or it created itself, caused itself, it is self-creating, or it was caused and created by something else. Those really are your only three options. Now the problem with the first option, that the universe was always here, is that there's really no evidence to support that idea. For, for a time, scientists proposed what was called the steady state theory, which said the universe always existed. The problem with that is there's virtually no scientific evidence to actually support that. Very few hold to that position anymore. All the evidence suggests that the universe had a beginning at a point in time. And so the, if the universe isn't self-existing, then a second option is that it's self-creating, that it brought itself into being. And there are a couple problems with that. The first is a scientific one. There's no evidence of anything that has actually brought itself into being. Everything that exists is contingent on or dependent upon something else that came first. The second problem is a logical problem. In order for something to create itself, it would first have to exist. But it couldn't exist until it had created itself, and you can see where that argument kind of ties you up in knots after a while. So the notion of a self-creating universe seems scientifically and logically untenable. So if the universe isn't self-existent and if it's not self-creating, the only other option is that something caused it, something created it, brought it into being. Some force, some being that actually is self-existent, that had the capacity for creation, 
brought it into being at some point in time. And that, that self-creative, self, that self-existent creative force or being would be what we call God in some form or another. Now, interestingly, the most widely accepted theory for the beginning of the universe is, of course, the Big Bang Theory, which proposes that in some time past, perhaps as, as long as 14 billion years ago, the universe began with a cosmic explosion of pure energy. All the scientific evidence points in that direction. What science can't explain is where that energy came from and what caused that cosmic explosion. But when you think about it, it sounds an awful lot like what we read about in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, where we're told that God spoke into a dark and formless void and said, let there be light, and there was light. The second thing that science can't really explain is not just the existence of the universe, but the beauty and the orderliness and the predictability of the universe. The universe doesn't just exist, it works. It holds together. It produces life. The anthropic principle tells us that the universe is finally and perfectly tuned to sustain life as we know it. And that the slightest variation in any number of physical constants, the speed of light or the, or the force of gravity, if any one of them were to change in even the slightest degree, it would bring an end not only to human ex existence but to the universe itself. So how do we account for that order and predictability and beauty? If the universe began by chance and continues by chance, then why would it suddenly become more orderly and predictable and beautiful? Is there any evidence of anything that becomes more orderly and more beautiful on its own with the passing of time. My garage doesn't. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> the second law of thermodynamics tells us that matter, energy, left to itself, tends toward disorder. Now, you know how I know that? I googled it. <laughs> all right. So, we're all familiar with Stephen Hawking probably the most renowned cosmologist in generations who recently passed away. At one point, Hawking acknowledged the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. Now, Hawking, of course, never acknowledged the existence of a personal God. But comments like these and others that he made suggest that he recognized the, the cosmological evidence for some sort of causal force or being. Now, this whole line of cosmological reasoning was, was actually put into words a long, long time ago by another great thinker and a missionary named Paul. Listen to what he wrote in a letter to the Christians in the city of Rome. He writes, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature 
have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Sounds an awful lot like that primal cause or force that we've been looking for. The word eternal is another way of saying self-existent. Power suggests the capacity to create something out of nothing. And, And that word divine suggests other something different from any other thing that is known and experienced on this planet. And even after 2,000 years of scientific discovery, of empirical observation, of rigorous theoretical critique, this conclusion is still reasonable and still consistent with all the known facts about the universe. The other night, Karen and I watched the film Ad Astra, which just came out uh, recently. It features Brad Pitt playing the part of an astronaut. It's set in the near future and proposes that he is traveling to Neptune in search of life. Now, it's obviously an entirely fictional account, and I realize they're all engineered special effects. But, But the impact of watching someone travel millions and millions of miles through space through the universe, passing billions and billions of stars and heavenly bodies and not finding the slightest shred of anything resembling life as we know it. And yet here's Earth, this tiny planet teeming with beauty and order and life. Why? How? What is the most plausible explanation for that? That it happened by chance and continues by chance? Or that some powerful, creative, orderly, living force or being brought it into existence? When you consider the cosmological evidence, it's pretty compelling. But in the end, you have to decide for yourself if God is real. A second line of evidence we might call the moral evidence. The moral evidence. Human beings, human societies seem to have this innate sense of right and wrong, of good and evil. We, we call it the conscience. Now, the particulars of that conscience can vary from person to person and from culture to culture. But always there's this notion that certain behaviors are good and right and others are bad and harmful. But again, we have to ask why? How? Where does that notion of good and evil and right and wrong come from? If if the engine of evolution is the survival of the fittest, then doesn't might, might determine what's right? Why would it be wrong for any species or being to do whatever is necessary to ensure its own survival and its own thriving, even doing violence to another person or being or species? Tim Keller explores this particular question in his excellent book, The Reason for God, which I highly recommend. And he describes a conversation he had once with a a young intellectually sophisticated urban couple who were struggling with this idea of the existence of God. And so he asked them to think of anything that they would say was inherently wrong. 
And the woman, the young woman, immediately responded by saying, the marginalization and oppression of women was wrong. When he asked her how she knew that, she said, well, it's obvious. Everyone knows that it's wrong to marginalize or oppress anybody, and women in particular. And he pointed out that actually many people don't think that's wrong. Actually, in many parts of the world, the marginalization and oppression of women has been standard practice for a long time. It's not considered wrong. And from an efficiency point of view, it's actually worked pretty well for the people who've been in power all these thousands of years. Yes, the husband said, but it's not right for any person to trample on the rights of another person. Tim said, well, is it right for an, one animal to trample on the rights of another animal by eating it? The man said, well, no. And Tim said, well, then why is it wrong for a person to do that? You see, if there's no supreme moral standard, if human beings are merely highly evolved animals, and if the survival of the fittest is the engine that drives human progress, then why would it be wrong for any being or species or group of people to overpower or even eliminate another person or race? Now, obviously, naturalists, atheists, have, have worked pretty hard to construct an argument that says altruistic behavior and morality actually does contribute to the survival of a people group or a society. And there are some arguments to be made there. But when you really consider it, it it's a strained kind of an argument because, because it breaks down when it comes to individual choices and to the pragmatics of everyday experience. For instance, why would a safe and dry person jump into a frozen pond to rescue someone who's fallen through the ice? Why risk their survival for the sake of another's survival? Why should one group of people, one clan, one nation, not subjugate or even eliminate another clan or group of people who are competing with them for limited resources. And yet all the time, human beings can and do altruistic things and even sacrificial things that benefit others to their own detriment, even at the risk of their own lives and survival. Why is that? And why do we consider it virtuous? Well, again, this, this moral line of reasoning was put into words a long time ago by that same thinker, the man named Paul. Listen to what he writes to that church in Rome, a city that was enamored with law and order. He writes, Indeed, when people who do not have the law do the things required by the law, they are law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and sometimes even defending them. So Paul's argument is that even people with no religious conviction or moral training at all still have this inner sense of certain behaviors being right or wrong, good or bad. Why is that? Where does that internal moral compass come from if not from an eternal moral being or force that brought us into existence and placed it there? So you see, the moral 
evidence for God, like the cosmological evidence for God, is pretty compelling. But again, in the end, you have to decide for yourself if God is real. A third line of evidence we'll call the existential line of evidence. This has to do with the question of meaning. Why do human beings long for meaning and beauty and purpose? Other animals don't do that. Squirrels don't pause to admire the symmetry and form of an acorn. They just eat it. They don't pause on the telephone wire to consider their own squirrelness. <laughs> but we do that. Why do we do that? Why do we long for meaning and purpose and beauty? If life is simply the result of chemical and biological processes, if it was set in motion by random chance, if it's only going to cease at some point in the future, then what really is the point of it all beyond survival and maybe momentary pleasure? If there's no originating purpose for the universe, if it's all going to amount to dust in the end, then what really is the value of any particular life or achievement? Now, philosophers have wrestled with this question for literally centuries. And the majority of them have concluded that without the existence of a supreme being, there really is no meaning to life and the universe beyond what each of us bring to it individually by our own choices, by our own pursuits of, of achievement or fame or pleasure or whatever it is we go after with our lives. But in the end, all those things will just be dust in the wind. Frederick Nietzsche, Jean-Paul Sartre, Bertrand Russell, the new atheists, Dawkins, Hutchins, Harris, all of them come to this same sober conclusion about the meaning of life apart from a God. Richard Dawkins puts it pretty bluntly. There is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. It is every living being's sole reason for being. Interestingly, another wise man who thought about these things many thousands of years ago came to a very similar conclusion. And he wrote it down in a book of the Bible we call Ecclesiastes. Listen to these words. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving for which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him... Who can eat or find enjoyment? Solomon tasted just about every experience available to a human being. Power, pleasure, fame, achievement, wealth, influence. And when all was said and done, he looked back over his life and recognized that if not for God, if, if not for a relationship with the God who gave these gifts, it's all really meaningless and chasing after the wind. It is that 
connection to the one who created and made all these things that enables us to experience beauty and meaning and purpose and satisfaction. And so the existential evidence, like the cosmological evidence, like the moral evidence, is all pretty compelling. But in the end, you have to decide for yourself if God is real. So we've considered these three lines of evidence which kind of sum up a lot of the arguments for the existence of God. And for the most part, these are objective arguments. In other words, they're based on facts. They're based on empirical data, things that can be known. The universe exists. Human beings have an innate sense of right and wrong. We long for beauty and meaning and purpose. These objective realities point to the existence of some sort of personal, moral, powerful being that we call God. But remember, we're not just asking if God exists. We're asking if God is real. When a child asks if a unicorn is real, they're not asking if unicorns existed once on the earth. They're asking if uniform and unicorns could be seen today. Could they be a part of the story? Could they be part of their story? And so there's this fourth line of evidence we need to consider, and that's the evidence of human experience. It's a subjective line of evidence, I know, but it's very real. We'll call it the experiential evidence for God. From earliest times, people, human beings, have claimed to experience God. They claim that God has spoken to them or healed them or helped them, or guided them, or rescued them, or saved them, or changed them. They claim to have sensed God's power and presence at work in their lives or in the world. All kinds of people from all walks of life, in all kinds of circumstances, and in every culture on earth. Now, to be sure, all those experiences don't line up with the God of the, of the Bible, the Christian faith, but all those experiences together point to the pl plausibility that there really is someone or something out there, something that can be known even though it can't be seen. Because remember, not every real thing can be seen or measured or proven or replicated in a laboratory. I think we'd all agree joy is real. Love is real. But you can't really measure joy. You can't engineer love. That will probably blow up in your face. But every human being experiences joy and love almost on a daily basis. Some people will argue that the things that we call joy and love, those are just physiological responses triggered by sensory data, enhanced by human hormones, and processed by our neural processors, receptors in the brain. All right, well, what's wrong with that? If, if love is real, if joy is real, doesn't it make sense that our minds and bodies would have the capacity to actually experience love and joy? And if there is a being called God, isn't it logical that our minds and bodies would be able to process and experience that being called God? 
Just because we can explain these things scientifically doesn't mean they're not real. They're as real as everyday experience. This book we call the Bible contains numerous accounts of people down through the centuries, through all walks of life, who claim to have had experiences with God. Now, next week, we'll talk about this book called The Bible and just how we read it and understand it and can we take it seriously or not. But for now, listen to the words of one of these people who claim to experience God personally. He writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, the writer of these words was a man named John, a fisherman and a thoughtful man. And he, he takes great pains to make very clear that he and many others had very real experiences with God in the form of this historical figure named Jesus. They saw him. They heard him. They touched him. They were changed by him. The world was changed by him. Now, you might be tempted to say, yeah, I mean, that was a long time ago. It was a more primitive time. People were more open to those sorts of things. I don't know who any of those people were. And you may be right about all of that. But chances are you know some of the people who are sitting around you this morning. If you're watching from any one of our locations, chances are the room you are in right now is full of people who will claim to have experienced God. These are people you know, people you trust, I hope, people of character and credibility, people who will tell you that, that, that God has broken into their experience, that they actually relate to God on a daily basis, that he's changed them, is informing them, and is helping them along the way. That doesn't prove anything, but it certainly points to something, especially when you consider the great numbers of people and varieties of people and character of people who make that claim. And so when you put that experiential, subjective evidence alongside the empirical, cosmological, moral, and, and existential evidence, it all makes a pretty compelling case for God. But in the end, you have to decide for yourself if God is real. Because again, all of this is evidence, not proof. So at some point, you have to make a decision. And that decision is going to involve a leap of faith, as it's often called. The leap of faith. But understand, it's not a leap in the dark as people often describe it. It's actually a leap in the light, the light of a lot of compelling evidence that these things might be true. And understand, if you decide that God is not real, well, that requires a leap as well. And that may be a leap into the dark more so than the other way around. Because when you leave God out of the equation, you don't find very satisfying answers to these cosmological, existential, moral, and experiential questions. So I realize this has been a pretty academic, theoretical kind of exercise, and you've all been listening very attentively, by the way. You get an A for class participation. 
But let's finish with a story. Because in the end, it comes down to every person's decision. So let's consider one person's journey to faith. And the person whose story I'd like to consider is a man named Dr. Francis Collins, known to many of you perhaps, well-known, highly regarded scientist. He, for many years, led the Human Genome Research Project. He was one of the leads on that, on that project and has served as the national director of the, director of the National Institute for Health. So a highly regarded scientific figure in the community. So let me just read you a little bit of his story as he tells it in his own words. He writes, Growing up, I was vaguely aware of things that went on in church, but when I got to college, I was challenged about what my beliefs were. I listened to others make an argument that religion and beliefs were basically a superstition, and I began to think, yeah, that's probably what I believe too. Then I went off to be a graduate student in quantum mechanics at Yale. I read what Einstein said about God and concluded that if there was a God, it was probably somebody who was off somewhere else in the universe, certainly not a God that would care about me. So I concluded that all of this stuff about religion and faith was a carryover from an earlier irrational time. Now that science had begun to figure out how things really work, we didn't need God anymore. I finished up my graduate degree and decided to go, into med go to medical school as a way of exploring the more human side of science, namely biology. So it was really as a, as a medical student and resident, encountering what disease and the specter of death does to human beings, that I began to wonder about this. Some of my patients were clearly relying on their faith as a source of strength in circumstances that were pretty awful. And yet instead of railing at God, they seemed to lean on their faith as a source of great comfort and reassurance. And that was interesting and puzzling and unsettling. And as I began to ask a few questions of those people, I realized I had made a decision to reject faith without ever really knowing what it was I rejected. And that worried me. As a scientist, you're not supposed to make decisions without the data. So with an intention of shooting this whole thing down, I went to speak to a local minister. He was very tolerant and patient. He gave me a copy of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis's book that outlines the arguments leading to his conclusion that God is not only a possibility, but a plausibility. That was a concept I was unprepared to hear. Until then, I had assumed that faith was something that you arrived at because it was drummed into your head when you were a little kid, or by some emotional experience, or some sort of cultural pressure. The idea that you would arrive at faith because it made sense, because it was rational, because it was the most appropriate choice when presented with the data, that was a new concept. But this decision was a step that I hadn't been aware of. You can argue yourself on the basis of intellect right up to the precipice of belief, but then you have to decide. I struggled with that for many months, really resisting this decision. Finally, after about a year, I was on a trip to the Northwest, and on a beautiful afternoon, hiking in the Cascade Mountains, where the remarkable beauty of the creation around me was so overwhelming, I felt, I cannot resist this another moment. This is something I have really longed for all my life without realizing it, and now I have got the chance to say yes. So I said yes. I was 27. I've never turned back. It was the most significant moment of my life. And for the past 40-some years, Francis Collins has championed the integration of faith and science, saying that these two are not in opposition to each other, but in partnership with each other. 
that the more we learn about the universe and human experience, the more it points us to a powerful, good, and personal God. Some of you perhaps are students. Maybe you're, you're home for the holidays. Maybe you're just back in the area to start school again. You have nothing to fear from science, from philosophy, from history. The more we learn about the world, about human experience, about the universe, the more it points us to the God that we meet in the scripture, as I understand it. You can see how these various lines of evidence were a part of Colin's journey. The existence and the orderliness of the universe. This innate sense of morality and meaning. The experience of people he met in hospitals. But at a certain point, he realized he needed to make a decision. He needed to make that leap into the light. He had to decide for himself. He had to discover for himself that God was real, and he did. And that same journey, that same decision, that same discovery awaits every one of us. Because the truth is we're all on this journey. Even those of us who've already come to decisions about faith, sometimes we need to revisit that journey. We need to rediscover our own faith. And it turns out that the evidence for God is pretty compelling. But in the end, you'll have to decide and discover that for yourself. And that's what this series is about. And that's what this church is about. We are a community of people on the way, seeking and discovering life with God. So we hope you'll join us for the rest of this journey. But as we finish up here today, we have an opportunity to gather around the communion table and to remind ourselves of a point in time when we believe this God we've been talking about came as near to us as is humanly possible. So near as to actually sit down at a dinner table with a group of friends and invite those friends to touch and taste his very presence with them. And he gave that gift not just to those around the table that day, but to everyone who would believe and seek him afterwards. So let's allow ourselves a few moments to reflect on what we've been thinking about and experience the very real presence of God. Why don't we pray? We thank you, Lord, for this universe you've made and all its beauty and splendor and mystery. We thank you for human experience in all of its richness and complexity. Thank you for the minds you've given us to think about all these things. Thank you for the heart you've given us that longs for these wonderful things. And thank you for the spirit you give us that enables us to say yes when our minds and hearts and wills are ready. Pray that you might meet each of us wherever we might be on that journey today and that you might even meet us in these moments as we gather around your table. In Jesus' name, amen.